0: Under the scripture then let us, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, again we continue to be amazed at the fact that uh, we have before us the very word of God. All the things we have in our possessions, whether books or other things, this is different than all, all the rest. And I pray that we never take it lightly, but realize what we have before us and that even now that you would fill us with a sense of awe and a great desire to hear what you have to say, that we would take it literally to heart, that you'd plant it deep within us, that it would enable us to understand you better, to know more of life and to live it in such a way that is real life that's pleasing to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read uh, from Psalm 119. I want to read this particular stanza that begins in verse 73 and ends in verse 80. I call it a stanza because this, this psalm, as you may know, is divided into various sections of eight verses. And this particular stanza, this particular section, begins with verse 73. Hear, please, the word of God. Your hands have fashioned me, have have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Now we began uh, working our way through various parts of this psalm some uh, weeks ago. And remember the the theme here, what, what the psalmist is after is showing that the word of God is the ground of the foundation for the source of a blessed life, of blessing, meaning to be able to live happily that's what the sense of blessing means this means a sense of happiness we've talked about that word happiness it's a shallow word for us but for the psalmist it wasn't a shallow word it meant an enduring happiness a real deep joy a sense perhaps of contentedness satisfaction and knowing the life that you lived was a life worth living that was real life and he says the source of that how we understand that at least comes from the word of God knowing God's word and living after it and he even says as he reveals his own life that this life of blessing blessings from living out of this word of god is for even those who find themselves suffering find themselves in difficulties that happiness doesn't come because the word of God causes them to leave our lives. The word of God doesn't eliminate suffering. It doesn't el- eliminate difficulties from the lives of human beings, from the lives of those people who even follow after God. But He says there's even blessedness in the midst of that. That's His that's His testimony. He seems to be suffering from uh, uh, from injustice. There are people after him, people that are lying about him, uh, and and so forth, and and trying to do him in you remember again just by way of review how he describes it verse 23 he says even though princes sit plotting against me so even even the ruler is against him and if he's against you everybody's against you and then in verse uh, 85 he says the insolent or the arrogant have dug pitfalls for me they do not live according to your law Uh, all your commandments are sure they persecute me with falsehood help me Uh, they've almost made an end to me on earth, in other words, they've almost been successful. Uh, they're coming after him and trying to get him to to um, to fall. And so this great difficulty in the midst of that, he describes himself as one whose soul is clinging to the dust. Meaning, there's nothing to hang on to. I'm I'm, I'm reaching out for something, and there's really nothing here. That's how I feel. I'm laid low. I'm clinging to the dust. He says that. His soul is, is melting uh, away. And, and indeed in verse 84 he says, How long must your servant endure? And so even in the midst of suffering, he's saying there's a way of being blessed in the midst of that. Now the helpful thing for us in that is we realize that anybody can feel blessed on a good day. We wonder, is there any blessing on a really bad day? And his point is, I'm going to tell you there's blessing in the worst of times so that you'll take comfort knowing if there's blessing in the worst of time, then generally speaking... There must be blessing. He gives you the worst case scenario of his life. A situation that he describes as clinging to the dust. And he says still the word of God is sufficient to help me. The word of God is sufficient to enable me to have this great blessing. And so he, he prays then that he would understand the word of God, notice verse 33, teach me. He says, O oh Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. And so knowing what he knows about the word of God, that it's the source, the ground for his, his, his blessing, his happiness, he says, all right, then teach it to me. I really must know this. Don't let me be confused. Don't let me follow any other way. So he prays that, he, that God would teach him. And, and then he says that this word is his Delight, for instance, in verse 77 that I just read a few minutes ago. He says, let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And then verse 143, he says, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. He says, okay, this is the way of, 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 of real joy. Thus, I'm going to delight In your word, so teach it to me. And he also says that I will love your word. And he asks God to enable him then to live by them, to to actually keep this word. Ah, He says, I love your word. And I will meditate on it. For the psalmist to meditate isn't just to take an afternoon or even an hour or something like that and to think about the Word of God. But he's committed to a lifelong consideration of the Word of God. That frame is what meditation is. This will be my meditation day and night. This, will, this isn't just something, you know, I, I fold my, my legs in an awkward position and, uh, and hum for a while. It's not that kind of meditation. It's a lifelong consideration of what God has said. And it's a never-ending consideration of what God has said. This will inform my whole life, he says. So teach it to me. I'll delight in it. My delight will be reflected by my meditation on it. I will love it and I will keep it. Notice how he puts it in verse 32. He says, I'll run in the way of your commandments. I'll run in the way of your commandments. This will, this will motivate, move my whole life, your commandments. And the blessing comes in various ways. This word keeps him from sin as he treasures it, as he hides it in his heart. As it's the very delight of his life, it keeps him from sin. He, he looks upon this word and he says, Oh, I know what, what, what sin is on the basis of this word. I, I know what righteousness is on the basis of this word. It, it brings grace to him. It enables him. It strengthens him. Enables him by the very spirit of God to, to live this out. It keeps him from sin. He says it enlarges his heart. That verse 32, I'll run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. As he meditates upon this word, his, his capacity to deal with all the situations of life is increased. And he says, he says, oh, I can deal with even tragedy. I can deal with even grief. I can deal even with this persecution. I can deal with the most difficult things of life because as I meditate on your word, my capacity increases. Something in me grows. I get it. It increases, it enlarges his heart. It enables him to know that he's loved by God, this very word that comes from verse 76. He says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me. All of this comes by way of this word when everything else in life speaks against the very steadfast love of God. This word comes to us and says, no, 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 God loves And he loves his people with a steadfast, enduring, covenantal love, a love that cannot be broken. No matter what you see, no matter what you feel, this word comes and it enlarges his heart and brings him great contentment because he says, no, God loves and God loves me. He, he knows that his life produces good even in times of difficulty so so he can say before i was afflicted i went astray but now i keep your word it's good verse 71 for me that i was afflicted that i might learn your statutes he said even in the midst of affliction god brought good now the new testament translation is that famous verse romans 8 28 that God works or causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the sense. And the reason that God does that is that he is himself good. So no matter what else the psalmist sees, the word of God continues to bring back to him, no, God is good and he's, he loves you and all that takes place in your life, even in the midst of this suffering and even the suffering himself comes to you as a result of God's faithfulness to you so that you would know him better, so that you would love him more, so that you would see his steadfast love even more. And so from the word of God, he realizes all of this, and not only that but this amazing thing that we talked about last Sunday, and I can't quite get over this this amazing thing, that even in the midst of suffering for the people of God there's a way through that suffering that we're actually enabled to give a gift to others. You remember the the passage that we considered last Sunday. He says, those who fear you, verse 74, shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. So even in the midst of suffering, we can continue to love others not by doing anything other than following after God and being faithful to Him. Because when we're in the midst of suffering, people look at us and they wonder, What will become of my life if that happens to me? And as God is faithful to us, people look at us and they say, Oh, God really is faithful. And so even in the midst of our suffering, we can realize it's bigger than ourselves. And we're actually through it, giving a gift to others. We're actually loving them. And you see, loving others is a need that we have. We're created in the image of God. We must love. If we don't love, we're less than human. And so can we love even when we're suffering, even when we have to spend all this attention on ourselves because we're going through great difficulties? And the answer is yes. The way that we're loving others is to show them the faithfulness of God. And they see it and rejoice and say, yes, God is good. Now, there's something else today I want to grab a hold of. This whole thing of suffering. It'll be the, sort of the last suffering theme sermon out of Psalm 119. I don't know if I can take any more. But uh, this, this sense of our suffering bringing blessing because it's bigger than ourselves. Notice verse 78. Psalmist writes, Let the insolent or the arrogant be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your Precepts. Now, throughout the psalm and really the psalmists in general pray often that God will vindicate them, that they will not, that He will not put them to shame, that they'll be vindicated by way of showing that their faith is real and, and, and that faith in God is that which is is good and does in fact bring blessing. And so now the psalmist counters that, and he said, "Those who are coming against me, put them to shame," meaning vindicate me. So by, by not allowing them to have a victory over me. So he prays that God would in a sense vindicate him. and That he would put to shame these enemies. And he, when he does that, he's saying, I don't want them, God, to be successful in what they're trying to do. And what they're trying to do is, yes, pull him down. But pull him down in such a way that he will dishonor God because the, the, the real reason for coming against him is because they want to come against God because they want to see God mocked God dishonored so they, they come after this one who's a, who's a God fear this one who's following after God who's, one who's in covenant with God this one who claims that God loves him and they come after him with all kinds of falsehoods with hope that they bring him down so in the same sense they bring down God so, so he's saying to God praying God don't let them be successful in that but I will meditate upon your precepts, upon your word. It's not unlike, remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that story? Some of you might know that one. If you grew up in Sunday school, you're singing a song about that right now, and I apologize for that. Uh, It'll be with you for the rest of the day. But... um, But you remember that that they were taken and they were to worship this idol and so forth. And they said, no, they were going to worship God. And they were threatened with their lives to to be put into this fiery furnace. And, um, And as they were heading to this fiery furnace, they said, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship this idol. And there's a sense in which the psalmist is saying, vindicate me, put them to shame, don't let them be successful. They're they're, they're saying falsehoods against me. Everything they're saying is wrong. Of course, in this, the psalmist isn't saying that he's sinless. He's just saying, according to what they're saying, this isn't true. If it was true, then the word of God to him would be go and ask their forgiveness, make restitution if they've hurt them. But none of that's taken place. So he's saying, vindicate me, put them to shame, if you will, God, please. uh, Don't let them mock you through putting me to shame but in the meantime till all that happens, until they're put to shame I commit myself to meditate upon your word, that's what will sustain me, that's what will keep me going your word that says that you love me your word that says that you're good Your word that promises to bring good out of this situation. Your word that says that you're faithful to me. Your word that says, I will enlarge your heart as you you meditate upon this word. And, And it will enlarge my heart so much so that even if this persecution continues, still I won't falter. Still I will profess, confess you. And so he has this resolve that I will meditate on your precepts. He has this prayer in verse 80. He says, may my heart be blameless in your sight. He says, okay, God, I need your help. If I'm going to endure this, I need your help. So enable me to meditate in your word. Enable me to follow after you. Enable me to be blameless in your sight. And so he prays that that's his his heart's desire. Now prayers for vindication, personal vindication, are, are fine to pray. We find them out throughout all of, the, um, all of the scripture. And sometimes we, we, we see that vindication in our lives and, and sometimes, sometimes we don't. But let me suggest to you that there's something even bigger than just personal vindication for which the psalmist is praying that is a source of great purpose in our life and ultimately a great blessing. Turn, if you have a Bible, quickly to Revelation and chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, I want to set something up here and then make a point. Revelation in chapter 12. Now I know that when we turn to Revelation, everybody gets nervous and it's so difficult and all that kind of stuff. And I, I appreciate all of that, but it's in the Bible and it's helpful. This is, a, I think, a fairly of all the passages, easy passage to understand, especially if you understand it the way I do. Uh, Revelation in chapter 12. Verse 1. Setting something up here. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And so, this sense of this woman, he's seeing this woman, and he's communicating it through this sign and symbol, and there's various reasons why we suspect John did that, and that's not for us to consider at the moment. Some, um, especially in the Roman Catholic tradition, see that as Mary giving birth to Jesus. Um, That's unlikely, I think, as we'll see as the passage continues. Um, But certainly, this is Jesus being birthed. Uh, We'll see that and um this woman is probably representative most of the church that Jesus is birthed and gives birth to the church verse 3 and another sign appeared in heaven behold a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads seven diadems his Tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up in the air, to caught up to God and his into his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Now. Clearly you get this, it seems clear to me, you get this sense of the birth of the Messiah. This dragon, we'll see in a minute, verse 9, he's revealed as the one that you know him to be, which is Satan. And uh, you realize that, that in giving birth to this child... Uh, this dragon, Satan, wants to devour this this child. Uh, you can even think back in in particular events in history about this dragon trying to devour this child. Even just through Herod, you remember uh, the wise men came to see Jesus, and and a dream had to come to them to say, "Go back a different way. Don't go tell Herod where this child is because he wants to kill them." A, a dream came to to Joseph. And said to Joseph, take this child to Egypt, don't go back, So because Herod will kill him. You remember that Herod then ordered the the killing of all the male children under two years old. With the hopes that he would find this very one who had been born and he would be killed. So you, you see this devouring and we can see that through even the life of Jesus as Satan comes after him. You can see that even in the context of the cross, the intention of the evil one to destroy him. But he's safe. He's enthroned. The woman fled into a wil- the wilderness that is a place of safety, although perhaps testing. At least that's the way wildernesses are normally pr- depicted in scripture. Uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she'll be nourished for 1260 days. Don't worry about the 1260 days. Verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Uh, before our God. And so, again, you get this sense of Satan being being cast out of heaven, and you think, what was he doing there in the first place? And the answer is, if you think back in the book of Job, he was there accusing. He was there accusing. You might remember even in the days of Jesus when he sent out the 72 to, to bear witness of the coming of the kingdom of God. They came back and they said, we've seen Satan fall from heaven like lightning. All right? He had this sense that in the victory of the cross, then he was cast down to the earth no longer to be able to accuse in that same way. Verse 11, and they, that is those who would trust in this one, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And so they trusted in the work of Christ, the blood of the lamb, and they gave testimony to that. This is what we believe. This is what we live. They gave testimony by their lives even when their lives were threatened with death that they would cling to Christ rather than cling to their own lives. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So you picture the crucifixion of Jesus and all the victory that that that, that won and and there would be those who would trust in him who who would live and they would be said to be victorious even over this one, that that this Satan and all of his demons, they'd be victorious over evil by trusting in this one Jesus, his blood, by giving testimony to that and by clinging to him even more than anything else, even their own lives. But then there's something set up. And what's set up is that this one who has been defeated at the cross is now on the earth and he's really mad and he knows his time is short verse 13 and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child well wow look at that he comes after but the woman was given uh, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness at a place of safety to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood so coming out of his mouth is something that he hopes is going to destroy her verse 16 but the earth came to, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring now who do you think that is us on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea now. What we have to be smart about as followers of Christ is that this really is a battle in which we're in. It's not the only thing to be said about our lives, but it's one of the things to be said about our lives and one of the things to be understood about our lives. And so when various kinds of difficulties come, especially those which we can identify with that which is evil, we really need to understand that though it causes suffering in the moment, it's bigger our lives than that. That we're actually doing battle. Now it's true that Satan was defeated on the cross. You might remember in Colossians in chapter 3 of the Apostle, or Colossians chapter 2, the apostle uh, puts it like this. He says, he, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, in his cross. And so that's how he did it. And he did it. He disarmed Satan and all of the demons and evil and all of that by nailing to his cross The penalty for our sin. So now the accuser has nothing about which to accuse us. You know, when Satan comes or anybody comes um, to accuse us, um, we simply accuse us of being sinful. We simply agree with him. You're right. However, it's a big however, however, uh, all of that's been taken care of by the cross of Christ. Therefore, we're pardoned. that's the sense all the time that's what it means to plead the blood of Jesus that when we sin, when we're accused whether it's our own conscience or another we realize yes that's true I did sin, I am a sinner however all of that's dealt with by Christ and so we overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by our faith in him the word of our testimony and that's what we cling to And you say, well, if he's defeated, then why is he any trouble to us at all? And my first answer is, that's not up to me to answer. I don't know everything. Is that a surprise to you? I don't know all the possibilities. I'm not God. It's his deal. All I know is that it's true. There aren't two gods in the universe dueling it out, and we're going to wait and see who wins. God is God. Satan is not. God has overtaken him. God has been victorious through the work of Christ. In the work of Christ, we're pardoned believers for their sins. Uh, He's at work in us to not only eliminate the uh, penalty of sin which is done but also the presence of sin which one day will be gone from our lives and now is being eked out, being worked out of our lives through this process of us becoming increasingly holy. Uh, however, yet, there still is a battle going on because he allows, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, this evil one to, to roam the earth uh, like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour and so there he is. And we know the apostle tells us in ephesians 6 that there's this battle going on it's between uh, principalities and powers as he puts it these things unseen so we we know all of that we don't see it like that but we know it's happening we know it's there uh and and so we can debate as to why it's there or whether it should be there or not but the truth of the matter is it is it's simply there And right now, Jesus rules and reigns over all things in such a way as to bring all of his enemies under his feet. And we're in him. We're part of that battle. The psalmist knew that. And he says, I'm going to meditate on your word. What's really important is that they don't succeed because you see all those who come against us ultimately are coming against God the psalmist would know that by one little expression in the Old Testament and it was the expression used of the people of God when God referred to them as the apple of his eye he says you're the apple of my eye and you know when you, the apple of your eye is the exposed part of your eye and you realize it's One of the most, if not the most, sensitive parts of your whole body. If even a speck of sand gets into your eye, your whole body stops, right? You just stop. And you close your eye and you rub it and you do all the kinds of things you're told not to do when you get a speck in your eye. Um, That only makes it worse. But but you do all those things. Why? Because you have to deal with it. You can't not deal with this little speck. If it got almost anywhere else in your body, you wouldn't even notice that it's there. In fact, you probably have lots of those specks even now. But if it was in your eye, you'd know about that. And God says that, that, that if anybody touches you, they touch the most sensitive part of me. And I can't not respond. You remember when the apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus at the time, was on his way to Damascus. And a bright light came and it was Jesus, as we know, knocked him off his horse. And Jesus said to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if I were Saul, I would say, I'm not persecuting you. I'm on my way to Damascus because you get these Christians. I don't know where you are. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to get these people. But Jesus referred to that as persecuting me. Why? Because as he touched his people, he touched, Saul of Tarsus did, Jesus. Remember in Matthew 25, as Jesus tells this parable, he says, if you've done this Unto the least of these brothers of mine, those who are my people, those who follow after me, if you've done it to even the least, not even the most, but the least of these ones who are my people, my followers, you've done it unto me. To touch us as believers is to touch Jesus. So when Satan comes after us, however he does that, he's really... Coming after Jesus, they say, "Why does he do that? Doesn't he know he's defeated?" And the answer is yes, but that's the insidiousness of evil. It never stops being evil. It never stops until it's completely thrown into the pit. And, and so, so here he is, even though defeated and can read and knows it and all of that, still comes after us to defeat God. That was his purpose in the garden when he came after Adam and Eve to, to, to get them to sin. He didn't care so much about them. What he cared so much about was God. He didn't care so much about mocking them. He cared so much about mocking God. To get the crown of God's creation to turn against God was to show that God was inept not worthy of worship, not worthy of obedience, not worthy of our lives, not worthy of glory. And so, so that's the insidiousness of all of that. And, and whether we see it, and we certainly don't talk about it expressly all that much. But it's here, it's present, it's real. And so you see that when we meditate on God's precepts and run with them, even in the midst of great difficulty, we defeat evil one we win the battles and that is to be for us a great source of joy now the evil one comes against us in various kinds of ways comes against us uh, through other people remember joseph in the old testament it was his brothers who meant evil god who meant good So evil came against Joseph in the form of his brothers. If you think of Job in the Old Testament, you realize that that Satan came against Job in in various kinds of ways. You remember that story that that, that Satan shows up in the courts of heaven and he says he's been going to and fro uh, uh, watching all the people on the earth. And then God asks Satan a question that I hope God never asks about me. And he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And, Joe, and Satan says, yeah, but who wouldn't love you given his life? He's got a bunch of kids that are great kids and he has wealth and all of that. He lives a wonderful life. Take that away and pff, he won't love you. And so God says, all right, you can take it away leashes, Satan, but he says you can take away his wealth and even his kids. And so in various kinds of ways, looks like a tornado in one instant, looks like a, a lightning strike in another instance, it looks like enemies coming to do battle against him, he loses his kids, he loses his cattle, he loses his wealth, loses his house, loses all that. But still, he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Don't you know that that was a great defeat to the evil one at that moment in time? He gave him his best shot, or what appeared to be his best shot at the time, and still he said, No, 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 the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what this psalmist is doing in the midst of this situation. He's saying, God deal with them. Don't you know put them to shame. Don't let them triumph here. But I'll meditate on your statutes. No matter what they do, I'm going to continue to follow after you. Don't you know that in the midst of that, there was a tremendous amount of joy. It's the kind of joy that a soldier gets in in the midst of battle when he knows he's he's defending that which is right. And he's going to stick to his guns, literally. And so there he is, the psalmist saying, "Hmm, we're not going to lose, I am going to be faithful to God. Knowing his own heart, he says, okay, God, don't put me to shame. Hang in there with me. <laughs> if you leave me, I'm lost. But that's the kind of joy that he would, he would know in the midst of that. So, so then God comes, of course, or, uh, to Satan comes to God and says, well, if you, if you let me get after his body, then we'll see. And so God says, all right, you can have it his body, but don't take his life. In the midst of great physical suffering. Job says, even if he slays me, yet will I open him. He did not love his own life, even unto death, but continued on. That was difficult. You read the book of Job, you realize the suffering that he underwent, and you realize all that that can happen. Even his friends come to him, and still he didn't buy in there, but he still continued to seek after God. God, I want an audience with you. I need a mediator to enable me to come to you. These people aren't helping me at all. And so he continued on seeking after searching after God, God reveal yourself to me in the, midst of, in the midst of all of that. There's a fabulous passage in Philippians concerning this issue. In Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 27. apostles writing to them he's in prison as he writes it's important to know he's going through a fair measure of suffering people are actually preaching the gospel in such a way that's making Paul's life more difficult so he's having to having to deal with that he's anticipating dying he's thinking that through what a joy it would be to die and be in the very presence of, of of God but yet on the other hand knowing that he he he's called to to serve this people and serve the church and so he's willing to do that and and that would be joy to him as well and so then he writes to them verse 27 in chapter one he says only let your manner of life be worthy uh, of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or am absent i may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one man striving uh, side by side for the faith of the gospel so you get the sense that whatever's coming against paul in some measure is coming against them because he's saying to them i want you to stand firm together don't give in, don't give in. I want you to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Don't give in to whatever is coming. And then verse 28, notice he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He said, don't be afraid. With an old commercial, don't let them see you sweat. Why? Because there's a battle going on. And the way that you're victorious is to cling to the blood of the Lamb, the testimony that Jesus is true, the faith of the gospel. And to not love your life even unto death. Even if they threaten to kill you, don't be afraid because you see in your lack of fear at that moment it will be a sign to them of their destruction you see what they really want what's really happening here if we can see through it all when people come against us it's just the evil one coming against God and he's trying to get to him through us And as we then stand and cling to the blood of the Lamb and that testimony, you know, this is true. God is good. God loves. God saves. God forgives. God restores. God redeems. We stand on that, you see, in the midst of that, and we don't love our lives even unto death, meaning that we cling to this testimony more than we cling to our own lives. Other people see that they can't get to God through us. They can't mock him through us. And they realize... I bet this is true Peter speaks of that First Peter in chapter 3 in verse 13 he says now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you'll be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled same idea Don't don't let them get to you. Think it through. See it through. See what's really happening here. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. That is, overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, his Holy One Christ, by the word of your testimony. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as always being prepared to make a defense to anyone asks for a reason for the hope That is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect and so forth. So that when you're slandered, those who revire your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, may be defeated. They won't be victorious in mocking you and thus Christ. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And there are times when it is indeed God's will. Notice, if you can flip back to Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-nine. Paul puts it like this. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That little word have, has been granted is, is the same word that we often translate as grace. God's free gift. So he's saying, Listen, I'm giving you two gifts in Christ. One is... I enable you to believe in him. And we go, thanks for that. (laughs) That's good. That leads to my eternal salvation. Thank you for the gift to believe. It's going to be grace to you to believe in me. And then he says, here's another grace, another gift to suffer. Because you see, in your suffering without fear, in your suffering in faithfulness, in your suffering clinging to my word, in suffering clinging to my word and not to your own lives, you participate with me in this battle that's going on and in the midst of that take joy you're defeating the evil one that's why one of the reasons why these gatherings that we have on Sundays are of such great value and should bring us such joy because in addition to everything else that this coming together is and we could talk forever about that it's warfare warfare It's a way that we, individually and collectively, defeat the enemy. No matter what else is going on in our lives, we say we're going to cling to the blood of the Lamb and give testimony to that, even if you kill us. So we come. And as we say that, in the midst of this, Sundays, as Christians gather Throughout the world as it spins, you know, there are people gathering every hour, uh, that um, the enemy is going, rats, I guess we lost. You know, we're going, yes, that's true. So there's a sense of joy. If you could be, just have a little, you know, the, the old language about the church was that the, there was two words used. One was the church triumphant. That was the church in glory. And the second word was the church militant. We need a little of that, don't we? This sense of, no, Christ is won. We're going to walk in that battle. Even if you slay us, we will hope in God. And the enemy just wilts at that. That's why funerals are so important for us. It's important for us to gather when the life of one we love has been taken so that we can stand, and if it's a believer, for them and with them and we can stand in the midst of that reality that's most pressing against us, that we would love to most avoid thinking about, talking about, and experiencing, right? It means that no, we will stand together right in the face of death itself and worship God. Because we're clinging to the blood of the Lamb, giving testimony that he is right and true and he is the savior of our lives even when our life physical is gone and those we love. That's why weddings are such great value for Christians because it's together we stand in the midst of a culture that's redefining marriage, that's redefining gender, and all of that, and we say no, we're going to meditate upon the word of God and cling to that which is true. This is the source of our joy, living this out as God has called us to live it out. That's why living holy lives is of such great value. I mean, there's all kinds of value to living a holy life, that is to following after God, but, but when we live that out in the context of relationships as we love, as we forgive, as we're compassionate as we're patient, as we're kind we need to see through the aggravations and the difficulties of relationships and realize that it's bigger than just the two of us or who's ever in conflict it's bigger than that, that if we succumb to sin in the midst of that, the enemy says, look see, it really isn't true about Jesus, it really isn't true true about his word all of this is just a bunch of bunk that's exactly what the enemy wants to have happen and and we say God why did you bring this difficulty into my life why did you allow it to come clearly you could have stopped it and he says I want you to testify to me in the midst of that through love and forgiveness and compassion and patience and kindness and gentleness and mercy and all of that I want you to deal with this in this relationship and this conflict like that so that the enemy will be defeated and when you do, no matter how painful that is, there's joy to say, God is right, and the enemy is lost in this one. That's why sexual purity is so important in the context of life and marriage, because everything comes against to, to say, no, 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 this is this is not wrong, and this is right, and we say, no, 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 that's not what God says. So, why is there all this sexual temptation in the midst of human experience? And it isn't just in this generation. Read the Bible. Sexual temptation has been around since the very beginning. My goodness, you can't read any parts of the Bible without realizing sexual sin and seeing it. It's always a challenge to us, it's it's always a way the enemy has come against to show that God is really wrong. And no, we stand forgiven and meditating upon the word of God to seek after him. And we can apply this to any kind of sin, unholiness. So this morning, as we come most especially, and this table is set, this is as clear as we can see it. And perhaps as clearly as we, as a company of people, can give testimony to the blood of the lamb and to cling to him it was as the scripture says by way of evil men that Jesus was brought to trial where he was condemned but we know that that was all because of the foreign nation of God he brought that into being so that by the suffering of Jesus the evil one could be defeated sin and death and now we live in him even in the midst of our suffering and difficulty even in the midst of temptation that comes to us defeating evil in the midst of all of that and so we see it in Jesus and he announced it to his disciples and he was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks and he gave this his bread to his disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you He gave it, willingly suffered, so that sin and death could be defeated. The same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes What do we do when we declare his death? Exactly what John saw in the revelation. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they did not even cling to their lives, even unto death. So it's this testifying of the blood of the lamb. He's conquered sin and death by way of his suffering. This is true so we come on a morning like this don't you know that there's I don't want to get spooky on you but we're being watched we were watched by our neighbors at least the ones that got up this morning and they wondered what are they doing It's such a nice morning to sit on the deck and read the paper and drink out. what are these people doing this is crazy We're watched by each other. We're watched by God. We're watched by angels. We're watched by powers and principalities. We can't see it. We don't know what's going on around all that. And it isn't even ours to speculate about. There's no no need trying to be thrilling and all that. Write novels. But it's all true. So this morning, here we are. We get to do battle simply by whatever else is happening in the context of our lives to say, I believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That you'd set this bread and juice aside in a way, in a part that that, that enables us to fellowship with Jesus. And in our coming, it would be our testimony that we believe the blood shed by Jesus won victory over sin and death and that we will cling to him not even our own lives so father I pray as we come that you will be pleased that each of us will be encouraged as we see the other come and that the enemy will be defeated, even in our coming. And that that, all of that together, will bring us great joy. God, I know there's some suffering today in various kinds of ways, and others I don't even know about, we don't even know about. Because life's difficult in various ways for all of us. So I pray that we may be encouraged as we see one another come, knowing that there are difficulties, and yet still we'll trust in Jesus. work in us now please I pray God in Jesus name Amen I remind you that this table is not the table of grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church it's the table of the Lord and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and all those who desire to live in such a way that is consistent with their profession their testimony that Christ is Lord that He is the Savior, indeed. That He is the one to be trusted and to be believed, to be believed in for eternal life. If that's true for you. I invite you to come. To come, these two sections can come down the aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and may that be your shot at the enemy. To say, Jesus is Lord. Please come.